I know I'm biased, but I can't help feeling that my dad, Maynard Medifund, was the best dad a boy could have. He was, and still is, strong and tender, firm and fun and so loving. During the school year, Dad was a high school biology teacher, but in the summer he worked as a horse patrol ranger in Yosemite National Park, where our family lived in a little tiny cabin all summer long there in the shadow of Half Dome and Yosemite Falls. And in both of those roles, both as a ranger and as a biology teacher, he taught me that true science and discovery weren't at odds with faith or something to be feared. Really, it was the opposite. In every crack and crevice of creation, from the microscopic DNA to a little flower in a meadow to the wonder of the Milky Way galaxy, my dad saw fingerprints of the Creator. For him, they each sung their own glorious hymn to God. And dad helped me to hear those songs too. Well, one place where I've been hearing and seeing that wonder more recently is in the discovery of current neuroscience. Scientists are finding that our brains really aren't anything like we once thought they were. They aren't like machines with lots of little parts that always do the same things over and over again. Instead, our brains are continually shifting and growing, even into old age. And of course, some of this change happens to us by forces beyond our control, but a huge portion of how our brains change comes through the small, daily choices that we make. And scientists can literally see these changes happening using MRIs. You know, it's our little choices that repeat again and again steadily change the wiring of our brain. And of course, that changes how we think, and ultimately changing how we think changes who we are. And I, I see that as a very powerful and also very hopeful thing to realize, that we really can change, whether we've experienced deep trauma early in life or we just see a lot of selfishness in ourselves and want to grow more generous and, and kind and Christ-like, our minds can be renewed. Well, I don't know anyone who is more thoughtful or studied on this interaction between neuroscience and our souls than Dr. Kurt Thompson. Not long ago, I had a chance to spend a good chunk of a day with him at his office here in Northern Virginia, and we had a chance to dig deep into what he's learned in the latest neuroscience, and also how all of that tells us so much about how God can work to renew and refresh and change us deep down inside. Welcome to Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. We'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here's your host, Jed Medefit. I'm here today with Dr. Kurt Thompson, who is a psychiatrist in private practice here in Northern Virginia, um, as well as the founder of the Center for Being Known, which helps leaders and others to integrate uh, the latest findings of neuroscience with Christian spiritual practice, as well as vocation in our daily life. Uh, Kurt is also the author of two books, The Soul of Shame and Anatomy of the Soul. So it is a uh, great pleasure to welcome you to Justice and the Inner Life. Thanks, Chad. It's great to be here. Well, um, let's plunge in with this. So I, I know you work with a lot of different people as a counselor, psychologist, um, facilitating retreats and more. And each person's story is obviously very different. But I'm curious if you in recent years have noticed uh, common threads of of elements that, that seem um, to continually appear in life patterns that contribute to unsettled, exhausted, anxious souls? Well, it's, uh, I, you know, I don't know, Jed, if it's uh, just a function of where we live in particular in Northern Virginia. I don't know if Northern Virginia looks like uh, central Kansas. I don't know if it looks like Chicago and L.A. It may look something like that. Um, but I, I would say that, um, you know, a couple of things that I've, that I've seen is um, the fact that we uh, continue to live uh, both at the pace that we live, um, meaning that we are filling our lives with so many different things, that we have uh, so much less time to actually be present with one another. And so consequently, uh, from a neuroscience standpoint, I would say, and also from a relational standpoint, we are living uh, both increasingly fast-paced and increasingly isolated lives. 
we're less connected to each other, primarily because we are also at the same time less connected within ourselves to different parts of ourselves. And by that I mean that I'm not really slowing down to think much about what I'm thinking about. I don't think much about what I feel. I don't think much about my actions and so forth and so on. I'm only, because I'm, I'm moving at such a fast pace, that pace necessarily means that I become, again, less connected within myself, but also less connected with others. I am not having the opportunity to know others, but more explicitly to be known by others. I don't have the opportunity to sit and have people ask me the kinds of questions that, as it turns out, my soul, my brain, is really longing to be asked. And in our world of interpersonal neurobiology, this world that studies the interaction of the brain and human relationships, um, we talk about this notion of integration, this, this idea that we are um, a, a collection of when, when we're well, when we are living, when we are flourishing, when we're well, we're living in a, in a situation in which different parts of us, my emotional state, my thinking state, my, my physical state, are well differentiated. They're well developed, but they're also linked together to one another. Mm -hmm. And integrated states are ones, it's, it's a collection of well differentiated parts that are linked together, like a great symphony has different parts of it that each are playing their part really well, but they're all linked together and paying attention to each other at the end of the baton of the conductor. Uh, what we find from uh, you know, our practice in psychiatry and uh, doing psychotherapy work with patients is that symptoms, my depression, my anxiety, my broken marriages, my alcoholism, my history of abuse, all these kinds of things tend to emerge uh, as functions of disintegrated states where either parts of me aren't very well differentiated or parts of me aren't linked together. And that is a direct function of the degree to which I am also not very well linked to other people. And so we see increasing uh, numbers and incidents, for instance, of anxiety disorders in children. Um, and you wonder why is it that third graders are so anxious in mm -hmm. ways that they probably weren't anxious even 20 years ago. And uh, that all, I think, is a bit of a, a function of the trickle-down effect of our uh, both of our pace and our disconnection from one another. Mm, yeah. Well, and I, I, I do think this is a macro trend, not, not just in Northern Virginia, although it mm -hmm. may be especially intense here, but, but in small towns and big cities all over the country, mm -hmm. you're seeing these same things. And as you alluded to, the, those anxiety numbers, especially mm -hmm. for youth, kind of, kind of the canary in the mine mm -hmm. indicators, mm -hmm. it seems, are just shooting off the charts. Right. Um, and, and you're describing kind of at the, the, the heart of this disconnectedness, that we mm -hmm. as human beings were created by God for connection, right. first with him, second with each other, and then in internally the various parts of who we are. Right. And you're saying this, th those connections in each, each of those three categories are, are breaking apart or at least fraying in many cases. Right. They, they are breaking apart. And, and we find uh, it to be increasingly difficult then to find our way back to being connected. Um, it's one thing for uh, someone to walk into my office and uh, present with a particular um, complaint of anxiety or depression, whatever their symptoms might be. Uh, it's not all that difficult in one session to be able to talk to someone and say, hey, look, here's the situation about your family, about your work, about your life that's disintegrated. Here's the situation about your brain as well that's a function of that. And, you know, as we like to say, diagnosis is not the cure. Uh, we can name these things. We can identify these things fairly effectively and fairly quickly. The problem for one, one of the problems is that we've been practicing this for such a long time. We're so good at being bad at life that uh, to turn that ship around uh, feels Herculean. Mm -hmm. So folks, I, we often say, you know, one of the challenges, the question for a patient when they come into our, our office is, uh, do you uh, want to be well or do you just simply want to be not sick? And in our estimation, there's a big difference mm -hmm. between that. I, I, I come in and I want my symptoms to go away. I don't want to have panic events. I don't want to have the mood disorder that I have such that I can, you know, I just want to be in bed all day long. But that's very different than the question of what do I really want my life to be? What do I want to be making of my life? Not what are just the symptoms that I have that I want to get rid of. And 
what we find is that that is so difficult is that we long to have our symptoms resolved, but we don't want to have to change our life as a means of doing that. Um, and, and it's not because, you know, people don't care and, and don't want to change their life. It is because changing our life is a really, really hard thing to do. So you are noticing that underneath the symptoms, which we're seeing everything from anxiety, alcoholism, depression, all these things that are on the surface, as you dig down in the roots, roots you're seeing fundamentally disconnectedness with God, with others, and within oneself. And, and you're seeing that, that at least a major driver of this is uh, overloaded lives, both with activity, mm -hmm. just kind of a relentless pace, as well mm -hmm. as maybe the content of, of that life, particularly driven by technology, continual distraction of thoughts, un unable mm -hmm. to attend to any one thing or one person for very long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, um, uh, we, in, in, our, in, the, in the book that I wrote on shame, uh, toward the end of the book, there's a, a section where we walk through the 12th, the first few verses of the 12th chapter of Hebrews. And um, in that writing, the, the writer says, therefore throw off every sin that so easily entangles. Um, but one translation of that New Testament passage in the Greek would suggest that a way to read that would be throw off every sin that distracts. And uh, we like to say that all sin begins with distraction. All sin begins with my attention being turned towards something other than relational flourishing. Uh, turn toward something that I long to clutch, something that I long to hoard. Turning my attention in a direction that leaves me isolated. One of the things that we uh, see about our life today, um, uh, especially as it, as it pertains to devices, for instance, is that devices are necessarily distracting. And, and part of the challenge, uh, and I'm not a Luddite, uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm someone who believes in technology, believes in the, the helpfulness that devices can bring to us as long as we keep them in their proper places. But never before in really all of history have we had to encounter technology that has such capacity for changing our neural circuitry in the way that the internet does, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. um, so it is true that uh, you know there's there's a great deal of what happens when we encounter our current device uh, activity um, in which what you find on the device is someone's intention to distract you. This is where we have pop-up ads, right? The pop-up ads come as an intention to get your attention and draw it away from whatever it is yeah, that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a microcosm of a great deal of what's happening. This isn't really, I think, in some respects, that far removed from what the scriptures have talked about for the last 4,000 years. Um, human beings can easily be distracted to things and away from relationship. And in many respects, that's not unlike what happened in the conversation between God and the serpent and the woman in the Garden of Eden. Like, where are you? Well, it's hard to know that because I've been so distracted looking at this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that, I think, is what the serpent does to the woman. He distracts her. And part of what that, I think, is also a function of, it's much more easy for me to be distracted when I am already as isolated as I am. Mm -hmm. Um Frankly, Jed, I need help from the outside in not being distracted. I need help. I need people coming to find me in order that I can know that I'm being found, in order for me to recognize that that's what I want, in order for my attention to be drawn to that relationship. And so this becomes a bit of a snowball effect. The more isolated I become, the more easily distracted I become, the more easily distracted I become, the more isolated I become, and so forth and so on. The more connected I am, the more difficult it is for me to become distracted. Therefore, the more connected I become. Therefore, the more able I am to actually choose to pay attention to the things that would be good and wise and right for me to pay attention to on my terms and not on the terms of someone who's working you know, for some software engineering company. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you, you see distraction as, as really core in all of this. And, and as you point out, this is nothing new. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think of the French 
philosopher Pascal, who talked about this 400 years ago, mm. and he, he named distraction as what, what he saw as the greatest enemy of the soul, that, it, mm. it was, that humans, even though they had far fewer devices and means for distracting, they were continually would, would gravitate towards filling their lives up with activity as well as what he called diversion, so that they wouldn't have to give their thoughts to the big questions of life. So they could kind of keep themselves... Uh, you could say, medicated and, and not have to deal with the big issues of life and, and what you might say is the big connections, connection with God, connection with others, connection within oneself. Right. So, so it's not new, but but you're saying that technology has, has, in a sense, brought the capacity for distraction and maybe even our our, our habits of thought in a, in a decisively distracted direction. Is, is that right? Right. I think, um, you know, in, in the 116th Psalm, the writer writes... Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Mm. Return to your rest. The implication being that it's not currently in its place of rest. It's currently out looking for ways to take care of its distress Mm. because it doesn't really believe that there is a place of rest to go to. And so, as you rightly say, forever human beings have been in this process of using distraction as a way to cope with the inner distress that we encounter. The inner distress that Pascal so rightly points out that we would encounter if we had to sit alone in our own room, which we can't do. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, one of the things, when, when Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus does not say, go to your own room and have a seat and be silent and be quiet, which is what philosophers would say. This is what Buddha would say. Go. He says, come unto me. Mm. Quiet, solitude, return my soul to your rest, this place of rest. It is not some singular isolated place. It is a relationship. That place of rest that the psalmist is referring to is a place of integrated relational connection Mm. with God in that sense. Jesus is saying, come to me to find rest, be with me to find rest. So this is not just a simple matter of, you know, if I were just like, if I would just practice being less distracted all by myself, if I could just do that, then life would be fine. The challenge with that is that I would be left with all my internal conflicts on my own, And then what am I going to do? Mm. If I don't have someone with whom I can be deeply connected, whereby which those connections can be re-understood, re-imagined, healed, if you will, recommissioned, if you will, if I'm not in connection with someone else that will enable me to do that, at some point, sooner or later, I'm going to have to find a way to wander back outside and go get distracted as a way to cope with all this internal distress that I've been carrying around myself and, you know, that I've received from my parents and from my grandparents and so forth and so on. Yes, yes. And, and Kurt, I know, although, of course, we're, we're speaking primarily right now in the, in the language of neurobiology, we're talking about daily habits and activities and technology, you trace all of this or you, you ground all of your thinking in this ultimately in what Christianity says is at the center of the universe, that at the, 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 the core of all reality is the trinity, the mm. the the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in continual fellowship and continual mutual deference, mutual honoring and connection and that we were created by that God and created to reflect that same interconnectedness. Is, is that right? Right. I mean, I think um, uh, you, you can never get too much out of the first two chapters of Genesis. You just can't get too much. And this notion of let us make mankind in our image um, or let us make mankind as our image, as some uh, have written, which is a bit of a slight difference, but a significant difference, as our image, that mankind, women and men, uh, it's, it's as if God is saying, like, let's invite humans to our party. We want humans to come, like, here we are having our party, the three of us. Let's make people that they can join in this party. But to come to our party and enjoy it, you're going to have to live like we live. And that means living interconnectedly. That means living with the intention of being connected to one another. That means 
as you rightly say, that means living in such a way that I'm going to give of myself to the other with delight. And I'm able to give because others are giving to me with delight. And I, as they give to me, I give to you, the other. And most significantly, I think, um, we who follow Jesus and, and we who look at the traditional Judeo-Christian heritage would say, I'm particularly wanting to give to those who are most vulnerable. Mm. Mm -hmm. That the New Testament talks about this notion that in our brokenness, we who are most vulnerable, we human beings who don't, who aren't able to get our stuff together, uh, we are the ones who are in need of the healing that only God can come and bring. And so Jesus, in his vulnerability, comes to meet us in our vulnerability. He, as the Philippians we read in Philippians that he emptied himself, right? He came, emptied, left that that space of privilege, if you will, to meet us in our state of brokenness and vulnerability. And so it's uh, it, it it's 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 not. Uh, I think it's not a a small thing to note that um, God, in making us, invites us to the party, but then also the biblical narrative suggests that when we then decide to throw his relationship away, we then put ourselves in a place of vulnerability and brokenness. Uh, we're the low thing on the totem pole of the power gradient. And God still comes for us. Mm. He doesn't just say, we want to have you come to our party as long as you play by our rules. And as soon as you don't play by our rules, you no longer get to come to our party. It's almost as if, even in the face and and because of our not playing by his rules, he comes to find us. And he said, like, we're not even going to let that get in the way of our invitation for you to come to our party. And so um, when this happens in Jesus in particular, um, we, uh, you know, we're, we're given a picture. We, we're invited into this story of what it means for us as the broken to be sought after, even as we are, you know, thumbing our noses at God, um, so that in that experience and in that discovery, um, we find that we can also then be his envoys uh, to do the same in the world. Mm. Yes. So if we understand that the core of what it means to, to be fully human, to thrive as the creatures that God made us to be, is, is connection. Connection with him first, connection with one another, connection with the various parts of whom God made us to be internally. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, the splintering of those connections is the big problem. And mm -hmm. we, we often refer to that as sin, and it takes so many different forms. Um, and, and you're locating a, a core central part of the problem as Distraction, distraction, mm -hmm. which erodes and breaks connection, as mm -hmm. well as distraction that then keeps us even from thinking about or dealing with mm -hmm. the problem. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and let's just say that that someone's listening, and and I myself uh, am recognizing. Okay, I am distracted. I see <laughs> my life. I see it as overloaded with activity, but then also the way that, that we let technology creep in like vines into every crack and crevice of our lives, it is distracting. My brain bounces mm -hmm. from thought to thought to thought mm -hmm. all the time. So, so let's say we've, we've named the problem, we've recognized it, and we really want to now begin to take it head on. Right. Where, where do we start? Well, I think, um, uh, you know, returning to our friend Pascal, um, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, there's there's plenty of um, there's plenty of examples in the biblical narrative of people being invited to be still, people being invited first to pause. Um, and so, when when we say, "Well, where do we begin?" Um, you know, well, we, at least here in Northern Virginia, you know, if there's a problem. I want to say, well, where do I begin so that I can do something about it, right? I'm <laughs> yes, just going to take yes. action. Where do I begin? Uh, I, I have people who are, of course, they're completely harried and frenzied coming into my office, and uh, they want to work on their problem and necessarily. And so we start to talk about, and they say, well, what, what can I do? Yeah, 20-part plan. Right, exactly. And I, I say, well, what we're probably not going to do is have you try to do what you usually do uh, now only as a patient, mm. right? Because I, I just want to, like, somehow keep doing what I've been doing 
only uh, apply those principles to what it means to, for me to get over my depression or my anxiety, and we, to which we would say, well, no, that's actually a problem because the way you've been doing things is part of why you're where you are. And so I, I, I talk about stillness and I talk about pace and so forth. Um, and and this, this, again, it gets back to the first two chapters of Genesis, that so much about where we begin hinges. It's, it's interesting, right, that uh, the narrative of Genesis chapter 1, day 1, day 2, day 3, so forth and so on, and day 7, God rests. Day 7, there is the coronation, as, uh, you know, um, John Walton uh, from Wheaton would talk about this notion that for God to rest is not for God to go take a nap because he's tired, but for God to rest implies that the king is now resting on his throne as the culmination mm. of this kind of coronation ceremony that's mm. taken place over the creation of the world. And so, not surprisingly then, even though it is day seven, the Sabbath often becomes then the first, for us as believers, the first day of the week. We recognize that we, before anything else, we rest, we pause. It is in the pausing, when I'm seeing patients, it is in the pause where they're rapidly telling me their story and they mention something that is like emotionally heartrending, but they just talk as if like they just like they're reading me the stock exchange. And when you invite someone to pause and wait and uh, invite them to allow their mind to catch up with their words, you suddenly find that they become aware of things that they haven't been aware of because they've been running from the train that's been chasing them for the last however many days, weeks, months, years. And so I realize this is a long-winded answer to your question, um, but when we say where do we begin, I would say we don't begin by doing, we begin by not doing, but by being. We begin by doing, taking those activities uh, that uh, most uh, ground us first in quietness and solitude that can mean everything from meditative prayer, silence. That can then mean taking time to read scripture deeply and richly uh, and, and reading long drafts of it. Not just reading for, you know, I, I realize that it's helpful and necessary for us to study and we can meditate on small chunks of scripture at a time. But Tom Wright, I think, rightly uh, reports and I, and I and I would suggest even from a neurobiological perspective the usefulness and the helpfulness of reading long portions of scripture at one sitting uh, because the reality is that if I'm going to spend you know if if you if you were to read the book of Ephesians straight through without being without doing it too rapidly it takes you about 20 minutes not too long to read six chapters uh if you were to immerse yourself for 20 minutes a day for six weeks, reading those six chapters over and over and over again, and as I tell people, find a place where nobody else is around and read them out loud, you find that what you're doing is placing your mind, what you sense, what you image, what you feel, what you think, your entire physicality, in the center, you are immersing it in this text that is not just a series of logical linear concepts. They're not just a bunch of abstractions. You find yourself immersed in the thing you want to become. Hmm. We like to say in our business, we become what we pay attention to. And if this is what I'm paying attention to, then this is what I will become. Now, that's not going to happen overnight, but I will guarantee you that it is more likely to happen if I'm willing to do something like this than if I don't. Those kinds of activities that first invite us to be still, and I'm still, in order for me to become aware of what it is that I can do that's different, creates the opportunity for me then to immerse myself in that which I long to become. Mm. So, Kurt, I, I want to, in a moment, come back to this concept of, of solitude and silence and, and kind of what this looks like, you know, and if we're, we're trying to do this and maybe it's new. But just for a moment, the, the, the phrase you, you expressed that um, we become like what we attend to. Mm -hmm. 
unpack that a little bit further. I mean, that, that to me sounds immensely significant, that we are shaped by the things that we're focused upon. Right. Well, you know, I think, Chad, it's not, it, it's, it's not a revolutionary concept. It's not, you know, like the discovery of quantum mechanics. I mean, I think it doesn't take rocket science to recognize that, yeah, like, I'm going to become what I pay attention mm-hmm. to. If I'm looking at pornography for 30 minutes a day, it's going to be pretty tough to have those images not be in my head. Mm-hmm. If I am practicing stillness, silence, for 10 minutes a day, bringing my attention back to the center of my breath while, I, while I'm repeating the Jesus prayer or repeating the you know Luke 3.22, you are my son, you're my daughter, whom I love and whom I will please, those are going to be images that I'm practicing and paying attention to. We like, in our, in our work, we like to say that we, we invite people to strike while the iron is cold, meaning I know that somewhere today I'm going to encounter some moment of injustice where I'm mistreated, somebody else is mistreated, so forth and so on. I don't want to be waiting for that moment to practice patience or to practice my capacity to regulate my emotion. I need to be able to do that where I'm not necessarily yet exposed to that in order for me to be ready to do that when those moments will invariably come. Part of what Jesus does, it seems to me, when he goes into the desert after his baptism, he takes with him this voice that says, you are mine. Nobody takes you from me. I can't believe I get to be your father. You are my son whom I love. And he takes this confidence into the desert and noteworthily enough i say like we it's easier to think we jesus goes into the desert as if the devil was coming to find him and i think like i think it's the other way around i think jesus is going to look for the devil in his where the devil wants to find him in his own heart his own places of vulnerability but it's not until after he's spent 40 days getting ready for this in the desert that then the devil comes, almost as if he's now permitted to come and have this encounter with Jesus as Jesus is preparing for this along the way. And in the course of this, we notice that when the devil comes with his temptations, Jesus, of course, rightly refers to the written word. But for a Jew in the first century to say it is written would be commensurate with saying, my father says, and you know how it's like when someone comes to bully you. And you want to say, my dad says. Hmm. And in that way, we are immersing ourselves in this, in this notion that we have to be attuned to what we are paying attention to. What I am directing my attention to day to day, whether it's my impatience, whether, how many of us, uh, you know, we, we have a fight with our spouse uh, before we leave for work. And, uh, you know, I mean... If you're like me, you know, it's easy for me to replay this mm-hmm. this argument mm-hmm. yeah. in my and head. Build the argument oh, right, my goodness. why you were right. right. And why I was wrong. right. And like and so yeah. I'm I'm practicing uh being angry and I'm also practicing um uh, my wife being wrong. Mm-hmm. I, and I yeah. and I, I play this over and over yeah. and I, and this becomes what it is. And so by the time I get home, like the whole story is much larger than it actually was in reality because of how and what I've been paying attention to, yeah, what I've been paying yeah. attention to. And, and you have grown little by little into a certain sort of person. You have become a, a litigator of your rightness and someone else's wrongness by, by, by paying attention to that over minutes and maybe hours. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. That's exactly right. It, it strikes me even just that you, of course, you use the example of pornography, that if that is part of our regular attention diet, that would shape who we are. But, of course, what you're saying is that anything we pay attention to is really what we are becoming. Right. And so if it's uh, political talk radio, then in, in two people who are angry at each other and, and com- combative um, and that, that we become more passionately political and we become often more angry and more uh, anxious if we're attending to that. But the same mm-hmm. would be true of sports. If we're mm-hmm. immersed in sports, we're paying attention to sports, the mm-hmm. things that, that are uh, there in the sports universe, mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. what we are becoming more mm-hmm. of. Yeah. I, I, I'm struck you know, by Paul's language, I, I believe also in his letter to the Philippians, when he uh, writes, if there's anything true, if there's anything good, pure, right, lovely, think on these things. And, you know, we read that, and we think, yeah, that's a nice idea. And, you know, Jed, 
it's real, like, it's with everything coming at us in the world. I mean, news, look, newspapers don't make money by printing headlines of things that are good and right and pure and mm-hmm. lovely. Mm-hmm. That doesn't grab our attention. No, we have to work at paying attention to that which is good and right and lovely that Paul admonishes mm. us to keep our attention focused on. And we think, well, my goodness, like if I'm paying attention to all those things, don't I leave myself vulnerable for when that which is dark and bad and coming, like I need to be prepared for these things. And I want to suggest that most of what is uh, really threatening in the world isn't so much real threat Mm. as much as it is our frightened anticipation of it. Mm. Look, we're all going to die. Like nobody gets out alive, right? (laughs) Nobody does as far as we know. And that being the case, you know, most of what we, most of the energy that we burn is spent not regulating real danger. Mm -hmm. It's spent regulating the fear of danger. I'm, I regulate my shame. I regulate my fear. I don't regulate like really, like real, like threatening things because like in the end, I'm not actually, as we like to say, uh, I'm not actually afraid of drowning. I'm afraid of the fear that I am drowning. If I drown, like, I'm dead. I won't know anything. (laughs) That's not what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of being afraid. And Jesus comes and says, don't be afraid. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mm -hmm. you of little faith, don't be afraid. Why are you afraid? Yeah. But if we're continually attending to, to, to media, to images, to stories that play upon these various fears, then we become a certain type of person. We become more and more mired in those, those fears. I am a frightened person. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I would confess, I, I used to see that passage that you reference in Philippians of, of you know, thinking about things that are true, noble, right, lovely, as almost a little prudish, like, you know, Paul's saying, you've got white shoes on, so don't walk on a muddy road. And, and but, but with what you're saying, it, it is making clear that if we are becoming what we pay attention to, then Paul is saying, hey, think about the kind of things you want to become. Do you want to become noble? Do you want to become excellent? Well, then think about those things, because inevitably, you're going to become more of that. That's absolutely right. Uh, you know, one of the things that... Uh I, 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 it just struck me in, in recent, you know, last two or three years is that those things in the world that are uh, the most beautiful, I think the things that are the most beautiful um, and sometimes the most durable, but not always because there are many, many beautiful things that are actually quite fragile, mm-hmm. right? Van Gogh, right? Icicles. But those things that are the most beautiful, relatively speaking, take a very, very long time to create. Mm. The Grand Canyon, right? A fine piece of artwork, right? A great piece of music. Mm. A human being. Mm. It takes a long time for this to happen. And if we are longing to become living, breathing artifacts of beauty, like we aren't just beautiful, We're not just adjectives. We are beauty. If that's what we are, it takes a long time for us to be formed. But in so doing, in practicing this, the beauty becomes durable as well. I don't just want to think on those things that Paul writes about, as you rightly say, just to have something better to do with my mind. I want to become those things. And here's the thing. I think Paul knows, like, it's evident, like, when beauty steps into the room, it's noteworthy. Mm. When kindness, why are acts of kindness, like, why why do we note them? We note them because they're so rare. Mm. Why are acts of goodness so noteworthy? But when those acts of goodness and kindness and beauty and genuine joy, not just fleeting happiness, when those things are in the room, it changes the experience for everybody else who's in the room. But to become that, to become living, breathing artifacts of goodness and beauty, 
it takes a long time for that to be formed. And so when Paul says, you know, you got to think about this, like it's real work mm. to do it. Mm-hmm. It's not just a passing uh, suggestion of something for us to do as part of what we become as believers. No, it's the essence of who we are becoming as yeah, believers. Yeah, and, and as I know, y- you would emphasize where, where Scripture seems to locate that carving, that slow carving process is in our thought life. Mm-hmm. You do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know you write a lot about um, the idea of neuroplasticity, kind mm-hmm. of how in the last 20 years, neuroscience has revealed that our, our brains aren't fixed and static after childhood like many mm-hmm. people once thought, but mm-hmm. really that, that we're continually changing our brain, the, the patterns, the kind of the, uh, you could almost say the watersheds of our thoughts are continually changing. And in fact, to some degree, every single thought makes some subtle shift in the structure of our brain, mm-hmm. e- even in a way that, that then a, a brain scan could actually show us. Is, is that right? Right. right. Yeah, I mean, um, some, of the, some of the landmark work was done uh, at the University of Wisconsin and then at the University of Pennsylvania uh, with researchers who looked at um, priests and nuns and Buddhist monks who were uh, both meditating and praying and how their uh, middle prefrontal cortex, especially their hippocampal cells, uh, those cells that are responsible for um, how we remember things, uh, changed over time with the practices of prayer. One of the things that this shows us, as you rightly say, is that the brain is uh, far more flexibly adaptive than we once gave it credit for. And to which I would say, you know, when St. Paul writes that, you know, therefore don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. If, if Paul were to show up today, I think Paul would say, well, of course we're talking about changing the way the physical brain actually works. I think neuroplasticity would would both uh, delight and fascinate him. I don't think it would shock him. I think he would say, well, of course, this just makes complete sense because this is the business that God is in the business of doing, Mm -hmm. of transforming who we are. One of the things that, you know, for our listeners, you know, the, the notion of neuroplasticity in of itself is uh, a word that represents the capacity of neurons or the brain's cells to make changes in three ways. One is um, the brain's actually able, it is actually able to create new neurons uh, in places and ways that we thought before it just couldn't do. This is a good thing when it comes to brain repair. It also means that um, it gives us the capacity when we want to think new things for our listeners who often feel like I'm just stuck in my life. I'm stuck in my past, my past history of drug abuse, substance abuse. I'm stuck in my past history of physical abuse or sexual abuse. I'm stuck in a marriage. I'm stuck in my old, you know, my old habits that I just can't seem to get out of. The good news about the idea that we can create new neurons, it means there's the potential for new connections to be made. So the first thing is that it rep- neuroplasticity represents the brain's ability to make new neurons. Secondly, that those neurons can grow in ways that we didn't think they could grow. And as neurons become larger, they can become more effective electrically. They can become more flexible, more adaptive, and so forth. And the third way that neuroplasticity affects us is the capacity for neurons to make new connections with other neurons. This is important because uh, how many times have we been in a conversation with someone when you, uh, you know, you're talking about something about their story and they tell you something about it and they seem confused and you might add your reflection to their story and suddenly your reflection that you've offered, you watch the lights go on Mm. in their eyes. Mm -hmm. Something that you've just said or perhaps just the moment, the way you've listened empathically to them. They feel felt for the first time because they're telling you their story of heartache or heartbreak or abuse maybe, and they've told no one. And in the course of them telling you, they see your compassion and they find themselves feeling things, sensing things, even imagining things that they were never able to do before, and you see the light go on in their eyes. In that moment, their brain is changing. In that Mm -hmm. moment, there are connections within their brain that represent not just the story that they've known and have told themselves, 
but that represent that they have held that story in isolation. When they tell that story to someone else, their brain now knows that their story is shared and all that goes along with it, what they feel, what they sense, what they image, is now no longer something that they carry by themselves. The burden is shifted. They are not by themselves. Their anxiety drops and they feel more confident to be able to live even in the middle of this story that hasn't changed in terms of the events that happened five years ago or 25 years ago. But in terms of their felt interpretation and experience of it, it's changing dramatically. Neuroplasticity, the capacity of our brain to change, really gives us the encouragement to know that as we become more integrated, like we talked about at the top of our conversation, as we create space for different parts of our mind to become more connected with other parts of our mind, our feelings become connected with our words. Our memory become connected, our memory becomes connected to our present day through and via the conversations that we're having with others with whom I'm also being more connected. It is neuroplasticity that is making all of that possible. And so uh, this is really, really good news about the gospel, right? We, we would say, of course, like it makes complete sense that the good news, the gospel, this new news that God with the resurrection of Jesus has declared him king and is ushering in a new heaven and a new earth, and we are part of that, and the essence of who we are is in our brain, among other things, all of this is being renewed, and it's not just metaphor. It's not just an abstract idea. It's taking place right in the very center of our physicality. Mm. Mm. This really, this idea of neuroplasticity ups the ante, ups the seriousness of our thought life, mm-hmm. right? Because, I mean, it mm-hmm. sounds like you're saying our brains are always changing. They're mm-hmm. never static. They are always becoming something. They're becoming more like one thing and mm-hmm. less like another. Right. And so that it's, it's, it seems like that would tie back to what we we're talking about with distraction. When we are distracted, uh, something other than us is choosing what we are becoming. It, it may be the, the latest feed on our social media. It may be what we flipped on the television. It may be uh, angry people around us mm-hmm. that we are becoming more like those things in our distraction. Whereas mm-hmm. when we choose attention, we are directing our focus in a particular direction and mm-hmm. and that direction is what we are becoming more like is mm-hmm. is that is that accurate that's that's absolutely the case um, and and I think that uh, you know um, one of the things that we uh, we do we, we in our practice we run groups which we're finding to be um, tremendously helpful for people and watching people change it at pace and at depth that we don't necessarily see when people are seeing people individually in psychotherapy mm. um, and uh, you know, every time we st- every every time when a group meets, one of the things that we usually start with is just a, a moment, about three or four minutes of focused, silent, uh, prayerful meditation, mm. and and breathing. And we say, like, well, aren't we always breathing? Well, we are, but most of the time we're not paying attention to mm-hmm. that. One of the reasons that we do this is uh, we really want people to. Um, become aware of the fact that when they walk in the room from their work or their day or whatever to start this group, they're transitioning from one state, literally one state of mind, into another one. But in order for them to come into this group and do the work that they're there to do, they need to do that on purpose. And one of the things that we do is to create this, you know, three to five minute space in which they're going to pay attention to what they're paying attention to, namely with their breath, as a way to prepare where they're going to go next in this group. All that to say is that they're readying their brain for the next step of neuroplastic change. They are preparing, they're being attentive, they're being attuned to what they are about in this present moment. They are taking advantage of how they are going to, as we like to, you know, the the acronym that you're familiar with, the acronym of to stimulate neuronal activation and growth. We're going to snag our brain. They are preparing to do that with intention. We said earlier that part of what creates our difficulty uh, is the pace at which we live. Um, How many of us, for instance, uh, take five minutes, let alone 15 or 30 minutes in the course of a day simply to be still 
in order to prepare for the next thing that we're going to do. One of the things that we have patients do, it's a pretty simple thing uh, that people can do. Um, uh, you take, a, take five minutes in the morning as part of your time of private preparation for the day or worship, however that works for you. Take five minutes of that to be silent. And in the middle of your day, at noon, you have a noon lunch hour, take five minutes and simply be silent. When you wrap up your day before you go home, take five minutes, not a half an hour, take five minutes and be silent in order to prepare to do the next thing on purpose and with intention, with your attention focused on your intention, as we like to say, in order for you to continue to move that neuroplastic trajectory in the direction that you long for it to be moving, mm, mm. going in the direction of who you want to become. Mm. So that silence both enables us to quiet all the, the whirring and noise, to be present mm -hmm. to God in, in, in the moment, and then to direct the spotlight of our thoughts in a particular direction. That's right. It, right. In, it's, uh, I, I, think, I think it was Dallas Willard who said our, our first freedom is the choice of where we will put our attention. That's right. And, and so you're saying, but, but it doesn't always happen naturally. Our, our life is such a tumult of noise and activity that, that often we don't really exercise that freedom or we're, right. we're using it without even thinking that we, the, about it. And so you're saying by choosing that moment of pause, uh, we can be present to God and then through the, the lead, leadership of the Holy Spirit, choose what we will turn that spotlight on. Well, that was just part one of this truly remarkable conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. In a few weeks, we will introduce the next episode of Justice and the Inner Life with part two. In the meantime, I just mentioned that if you would like to hear Dr. Thompson in person, we would love for you to join us at the CAFO 2019 Summit. It's hosted this year at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, May 8 through 10. And uh, you could just visit kfo.org. Click on KFO 2019 for more information. And I would just say personally, Summit is really an unforgettable time with people from all across the U.S. and, and all over the world and organizational leaders, missions pastors, advocates, foster and adoptive parents, and people just considering foster care and adoption, all united by a love for Jesus Christ and for vulnerable children. We, we learn so much from each other and also from many of the world's top experts on these topics like Dr. Thompson and many others. So if you care about these things too, you belong at the KFO Summit. But for now, let me just encourage you. Consider all that we heard today and pick just one thing, one thing that really struck you. And consider an action point, one first step you can take to act on that, to put it into practice. And take that step today. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Medefit production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit kfo.org.